Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, History, we'll be looking at the big picture of God's rescue story from Genesis to Revelation. Today's speaker is teaching minister, Tim Peace. Good morning. How y'all doing? My name's Tim. I'm the teaching minister here, and uh, I've been given the privilege to be able to uh, do the message this morning and take a look at what God's Word has to say to us today. And I've been thinking a lot this week, actually the last couple weeks, about this word focus. There's a specific reason. I've been dragged in with Didi and, and Aaron to do this video project we've been working on um, that we've been rolling out online. And um, I would encourage you uh, to take part in that. The reason being is because, you know, at this season of, of Lent that a, a lot of churches participating in the idea of giving up something for seven weeks leading up to Easter, well... We kind of wanted to capture that in our own, our own way. You know, we don't normally practice Lent here, but we did want to take time to try to focus on uh, the cross of Christ and the, the resurrection. And, and so what we're doing in this video series is rather than, uh, rather than calling it Lent, we're, we're choosing something uh, to give up so that we can choose to focus instead of um, instead of doing that thing. And so that word focus has got me thinking about what it even means to focus. Because to give something up, uh, whether it's something that you're, you know, addicted to maybe, uh, you know, an iPad or something like that, or, um, or just, you know, changing your routine a little bit uh, so that you have time, space created, um, that basically means that I have energy, headspace, all sorts of things I can devote to anything I want to, uh, but to focus on one particular thing means that all the other things I could be focusing in on uh, during that time have to go by the wayside. And focus is an interesting word, too, when I think about the uh, individual we're going to talk about today, and that's the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at his conversion story this morning um, but I actually want to start with a verse in Galatians 1.14 where he says this about himself in the past tense. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And you know, we hear Paul's words here and we hear words like zealous, and that word might make us think ill of Paul because we might have a negative connotation to zeal. Or how about the fact that Paul's a Pharisee? At one point in one of his letters, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's reached the pinnacle of the group of people he associated himself with. And we hear the word Pharisee, and anybody that's been reading the New Testament for any time knows that the Pharisees are one of a couple of groups that Jesus is always in a back and forth with. And it's normally an antagonizing kind of back and forth. And so we think of these words and we think of them negatively, and the reason that we might think of them negatively has to do with Paul himself. Many of you, if you've been in church for a while, have heard the story over and over and over again of Paul's conversion. And it's easy to read that story again and again and gloss over uh, the implications provided in the story. But I want us to slow down. You know, Didi talked about how he is slowing down in his Bible reading 
so they actually capture the detail and not miss things. Well, I want us to do that this morning. I want to read about Paul's conversion story with a fresh set of eyes so that we can gather in the implications. And Paul's conversion story actually starts at the end of the life of somebody else, and that somebody's named Stephen. And Stephen is considered the first Christian martyr in the church. And what we learn about Stephen is Stephen has a boldness for faith. He has been proclaiming his faith, and he gets caught by the religious leaders, and they bring him in for questioning. And it starts out all right. He's just telling them the story of the history that we've been looking through in this series. And then suddenly Stephen gets agitated with these guys. And he starts calling them murderous and, and vile and, and hypocrites. And they can't stomach this anymore. It actually says that they start gnashing their teeth and maybe closing their ears off at him. And finally the young men of the group lead Stephen out to be stoned to death for his blasphemous words. And it says that the young men left their outer garments at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. Not Old Testament Saul that we talked about a couple weeks ago, but a guy I like to call New Testament Saul. They lay their outer garments at his feet. And this is what it says in Acts 7, 59 through part of 8, 1 says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. And then it says this. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. So you want to know why we give the Pharisees and this, this idea of having zeal a bad rap? Well, it's because of this one Pharisee, this Pharisee of Pharisees. He claimed to be the chief among the Pharisees. He claimed to be a zealous man. And this is the outcome of zeal and Pharisaism in our perspective. But that might not be a good perspective to have. Do you know what it means to be zealous? Has anyone ever looked up the definition of zeal before? Well, actually, I did this week, and it says that zeal means to have great energy or enthusiasm and pursuit of a particular goal. And you know, if you think of the word zeal that way, it doesn't sound so bad. We all admire people that find something they're passionate about or something they're good at and put all that they have into that to become great at it. I mean, we watch sports for that reason. If you're an Olympics fan, you've been watching these people, these young people that have spent their entire life getting good at doing really cool somersaults and a half pipe to win a medal. Actually, they get a, like a bear right at the beginning. It's really weird. Anyway, we love watching that. We love the stories behind their efforts. Zeal's not so bad when you look at it that way, but on the flip side, if zeal provides that kind of intent focus on something and it's misguided, misdirected, misappropriated like it is here for Paul, zeal can lead to some very, very bad things. And so 
Paul is a zealous person, and we've looked at characters in this whole series called History that might have exhibited some zeal for God. And oftentimes we look at these people, not like we look at Paul in this story, but we look at them in an elevated light. Why? Well, let's take a look back. We looked a few weeks ago at David. And we've got Goliath, the big Philistine guy, spewing out insults at the Israelite people. And what does David do? He takes that sling, he hits him in the middle of the head, and then he runs over, stands over him, grabs the Philistine sword, he cuts his head off. And we applaud. No, we don't. I don't know if we do that. Last time when we told that story, there were some people like, yeah, why do we do that? Because David's the good guy. He's on God's side. And it's brutal, and it's hard to stomach, that kind of violence. But we're cheering for the good guy. Or how about the story of Achan that Didi shared back in the book of Joshua? Achan should have been the zealous guy, right? But guess what he did? When he wasn't supposed to take from the loot from the fall of Jericho, he went in and he stole and he tried to hide it from God. And what happens to Achan? He's eventually caught, singled out, and stoned to death. Why? Because he desecrated the entire people group. He messed everything up for the Israelites just by his one sin. And so he is on the opposite side of God. And so we gloss over it. But when it's our guy on the other side of the sword, the wrong side of the sword, like Stephen, that's really hard to stomach. And so what about this, this Phariseeism thing? Well, I have to confess, I have a soft spot for Pharisees in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. If you ever do any study on the qualities of the Pharisees and what they were focusing on, you'll find that these guys were deeply committed to the study of Scripture. Now, they weren't the most uh, extreme of the groups at the time. The Sadducees took that one. But the Pharisees were very meticulous about their study of Scripture and meticulous about applying it to their lives. And they cared very much for the Jewish people that they were leading And they cared very much about themselves and their people walking in step with God, at least as they saw it. But as you can probably imagine, this would lead to conflict. And it leads them into conflict with Jesus. And so you're probably thinking, well, how can you be empathetic against a group of people that were constantly trading jabs with Jesus? Well, here's the thing. Imagine that you have that kind of Uh, care and concern for following your faith and that kind of care and concern for your people. And you live under the oppression of a group that doesn't like Messiah figures. In fact, Messiah figures for the Romans always led violent revolts. And you know who would get caught up in those violent revolts even if they weren't party to it? The Jewish people. Because if one Jewish guy says he's a Messiah, well, the Romans would just wipe out the rest of them. So imagine being a Pharisee and this new Messiah figure comes along and he's arguing with you and he's developing a following and he's really attractive because he's doing these miracles that are drawing people in and you've seen other would-be Messiahs get violently cut down by the Romans and you've seen your people get caught up in the crosshairs. What are you going to do with him? See, It's a pretty messy situation. But of course, I'm a Christian, so I'm on the side of Jesus. 
but I still have some empathy for these Pharisees. And so Paul has taken his zeal and his Phariseeism, and he's taken it to the worst extent it can be. He's overseen the death of a human being. And then we get to Acts chapter 9. And I want you to hear what happens to Paul next. This is what it says. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the Christian movement, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, if you've been following in this series, this story should be unsettling to you. Because what happened to Goliath when he went against God? He was killed. What happened to Achan when he went against God? He was killed. What do you expect to happen to Paul who's killing God's people? Uh, go into the city and you'll be told, you know, what mission I'm going to give you. That doesn't sit right. That seems to have broken the pattern and then it gets, it gets even crazier. So then the story shifts to this guy named Ananias, who is a Christian, and he's heard the rumors of this Saul guy. He knows what he's done. He knows what he plans to do. And God intervenes in Ananias' life. And guess what he tells him to do? He says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul, and I'm going to have you finish the conversion process. And Ananias pushes back on God and he says, no, 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 no. I know what this guy's all about. I ain't going there. And this is what God says to Ananias in verses 15 and 16. He says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. There is an exclamation point here. This is not like in a, hey, you know, just if you want to. No, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. Chosen instrument. In Ananias' mind, and what should be true for our minds as we're reading this story, we should be saying, whoa, 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 God, this guy's the villain, why don't you do what you've done to the other villains in the past? Instead, God calls him his chosen instrument. That's pretty wild. This guy's done nothing that I can see to have warranted being called a chosen instrument. But there's something that we learned at the very beginning of this series from Aaron and then Didi the next week that I want us to revisit real quickly. It's all the way back in Genesis 1. What makes Paul a chosen instrument? 
You know, we read Genesis 1 and we get caught up sometimes in the back and forth science versus faith thing and we, we miss the point of the story. And this is what it says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and then 31. It says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And then God said all that he had made, or he saw it, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You know, if you read Genesis 1, every time God does an act of creating when he's creating the world, he ends every sequence by saying, it's good. But you know what he does after he creates people that's different? He says, it's very good. Very good. Now, Here's the thing about Paul. And here's the big picture for us. Paul, Paul was created by God to be very good. And you and I were created by God. And when God created us, he said, ah, oh, very good. But as we learn, as we go through the pages of Genesis, things don't stay very good for long. Why? Because sin enters the world. And it's not like sin entered the world like outside of us. It's called God gave us free will and we chose to sin. From the first people onward. And we broke what was very good and turned it very bad. And that's the thing. We've assigned Pharisee and zeal as very bad qualities. But you know who created Paul to have zeal? God did. And what God makes is always very good. And so the problem isn't that God created Saul to be a man of zeal it's that Saul in his sinfulness made zeal a bad word. Now, this creates a problem for us because when we talk about conversion a lot, we think about change as in becoming a different person. You get in the water and you come out different. And that's the language we use. We talk about transformation and things like that. But there's a very specific word that gets used in the Bible, and it's this word redemption, to redeem something. Does anybody know what it means to redeem something? Well, in some definitions, it would say that to redeem something means to buy something back, to pay a price, to get back what belonged to you in the first place. And you know, if I look through Scripture, I recognize that God isn't a God that's in the change you business. He is in the redemption business. And why would he want to buy back what belonged to him in the first place? Well, because he created it to be very good. It became very bad, and he wants to redeem it and make it his again. 
And that's what he does time and time and time again. See, we think that to become a Christian means that if I like to wear jeans, I got to check them at the door and put on dress slacks. If I like to listen to heavy rock music, I got to check it at the door and I got to listen to 103.5 The Fish because it's safe for the whole family. Or maybe if I'm an adventurous person and I love the thrill of adventure, I have to check that at the door and instead I've got to sit and have soft-spoken spiritual conversations over coffee about completely benign spiritual matters that don't really mean much and don't change us. <laughs> or maybe if, I, maybe if I was a man of zeal, I think I have to drop the zeal at the door. That's not what God does, and it's not what he asks. Instead, what God does is he goes to the zealous Paul and he says, your zeal has been broken and you misdirected it. I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to put it on a different path. But you're still going to be the same zealous person. Or he goes to fishermen in a boat. And what does he say to them? He says, I'm going to make you become what? Fishers of people. Or he goes to the shepherd, the young man, David. And he says, I'm going to make you the shepherd of the people of Israel as king. Because why? God's in the redemption business. And what he created to be very good, he will make good again. Therefore, Jesus' victory for us is not the end of our adventure. Instead, our victory through Jesus is the beginning of our adventure of faith. God's in the redemption business. And do you know how God redeemed? Guess what? I got to go someplace in the beginning of January, and I got to be right in the place where God started the redemption. I want you to throw this picture up on the screen here. This is a, a God, garden, an olive garden, not to be confused with the restaurant. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's a little different today than it would have been in Jesus' time. First of all, there's a fence around it. We didn't get to go walk on the nice little pathways here. I didn't want to get fence in my photo here, so I stuck the, the camera through the fence to take the picture to make it look nicer. And there's a lot of buildings around that probably weren't there. No, they definitely weren't there in the first century. In fact, these trees... The originals that would have been there during the time of Jesus were likely burned down when the Romans came in and ransacked Jerusalem. But these trees are descendants of the originals. But despite all the differences, do you know what was really, really neat about this place? There were a lot of places we would go visit that would look nothing like you expected them to when you were reading the stories in the Bible. This place did. Even the structures they put up, there was a church right next to it, and the, the, the colors that were used in the building and the, and the pictures really captured the essence of what happened in this place. And you can even see both the beauty and the sorrow and the color of the trees. And I want you to hear what happened in this place. It's in Matthew 26, 36 through 39. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, this site happened to be my wife Angie's favorite place that we visited. Part of that was because of the look of the place and and all the things I just described, but there was a second reason, and it's captured in this next picture here that you see. You know, I, I was trying to take pictures of the garden, get the right shot, but when she had her phone, there was a pathway around the fence, and she would stand looking the opposite direction from the garden and kept trying to just get the right picture. And so she took this one. And you might be thinking, well, why take a picture there when you've got the garden? Well, here's what's interesting. What we learned is that this wall on the back and the top of the hill here across the valley, this is where the wall of the original temple would have stood. And there would have been an entrance and an exit. Maybe, I don't know, a place where Pharisees might have sent a cohort to go arrest somebody from. And since it's up on a hill, there would have been a zigzag sort of path down here. And it might have been a 20 to 30 minute walk to get to the garden. But as you can see, it was also really, really highly visible to someone that might have been in the garden. If you've ever seen any Jesus movie like The Passion of the Christ or anything like that, It never fails that Jesus is there in the dark and it's foggy and he's praying and then suddenly, five feet away, Judas and the guards appear and there's nowhere to run. But that's not really what happened. Instead, Jesus, it says, was on his knees praying. In one account, it says his sweat turned to drops of blood. He was so and anguish over the the trials that he was about to face. And he said, God, take this cup from me. He's like everybody else. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to suffer. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. And it wasn't at that point that suddenly they appeared. No, Jesus could have looked off into the distance and seen the cohort with their torches coming out of the exit, coming down the path. And you know what Jesus did in that moment? He waited. He waited. He didn't want to suffer. But the thing is, is that he cared about two things in that place. He cared about honoring the will of the Father. And he cared about each and every one of us. And do you know why he cared? Because God is in the redemption business. And it's in that place that the redemption work happened. And what does God have to gain by redeeming us? Well, you know, God wants your zeal. God wants your smarts. God wants your talents. God wants your calloused hands. God wants your laughter and your humor. God wants your spirit of adventure. 
God wants your insight. God wants your love, your care, your concern. Whatever it is that he has given you, that whatever way he has wired you and created you, he wants it back for him and not in the broken manner that we have made it to become. He's in the redemption business and he did something about it. He paid the price at the cross starting in that garden there. See, Paul's zeal, when broken, it led him to be the greatest antagonist of the church of Christ. He actually called himself at another point the chief of all sinners because of what he had done. But because God's in the redemption business, he restored and redeemed Paul's zeal, and he went on to become the greatest missionary in Christian history having the same passion, the same meticulous detail, the same care and concern for people, but it was redirected by God on the road to Damascus. And that redemption is available to every single one of us. So I want to leave you with a question then. What did God make you when he created you? What's the thing What are the words we can use? Now, I know we ask that question, and we all have gotten used to the false humility game. Or maybe we're in a really low place, and we say to ourselves, I don't have anything good about me. Well, I have proof to you that that's not true. And it's sitting on the wall right there. You have value to God. He created you, and when he did, he said, it's very good which means you have redeemable qualities and he wants you and he wants those qualities and he wants to put you on an adventure of faith. But the only way to get there is through Jesus. God is in the redemption business. So as you go about your weeks this week, I want you to consider why you were worth redeeming. And if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't made a decision to become a Christian yet, know that God wants to redeem you and the water is warm and ready for you to begin that adventure. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for being good and gracious to us and for caring about us, for creating us, uh, for being honestly so optimistic despite our brokenness that you would send your son uh, to die Um, not because we deserved it, but because while we were still sinners, you loved us and you valued us enough to do so. And so God, I just pray for each and every one of us in this room. I pray that uh, you will inspire us and spur us on toward living a life of faithfulness if we've already entered into that life with you. And if we haven't, I pray God that you will stir the hearts of the people that haven't and that they'll come to recognize that they are valuable to you, that they're redeemable and that you want them just as much as you want those of us that have already made that decision. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.